Hi, David. There's so much to talk about. You've said that the Ukraine-Russia crisis is a stagflationary shock to the global economy. What's your current assessment of the macro implications of the crisis? Hi, Alex. Yeah, look, I mean, Russia is too small to have a kind of meaningful impact on global demand. But the effect of the crisis is being felt through higher prices of key commodities, whether that be oil, uh, palladium, uh, fertilizer, wheat, um, and and actually also from a potential disruption to global supply chains. Um, Estimates of the impact on global growth and inflation are you know, inevitably subject to a wide margin of error. There's just so much uncertainty. Uh, you know, will the war and sanctions escalate or will we have a negotiated settlement sooner rather than later? Um, we have seen, you know, some asset prices and including commodity prices, notably oil, retrace some of the sort of post-invasion increase, but, you know, still elevated, still, I think, volatile, still very sensitive, I think, to news flow coming out of um, Ukraine. I think what can be said with confidence is that the crisis has worsened the growth inflation mix for the global economy. So, you know, other things being equal, I think less growth, uh, more inflation. So it is a stagflationary shock. But, you know, we don't really know how big that will be. And it does depend on the evolution of the war in Ukraine and, and the international response to it. Um, that said, I think, you know, the erosion of consumer purchasing power from higher inflation, uh, the kind of depressing impact on sentiment, uh, tighter financial conditions, I think will feed through to lower growth. So we have taken down our euro area growth forecast by around one and a half percentage points. So to, to around about sort of uh, 2% or a, a bit above. Uh, we've lowered uh, our US growth forecast by about half a point to, to, to around 3%. But the growth in both the US and Europe this year, you know, we're still forecasting to remain above trend. The commodity price shock, of course, comes at a time when inflation is already at multi-decade highs and central banks are, in my view, belatedly unwinding the extraordinary pandemic-related monetary accommodation. So I think we're going to have to look to fiscal rather than monetary policy to offset you know, the, the growth risks from uh, higher commodity prices. I think that's especially relevant for Europe as the world's largest net importer of energy. And the European Commission is working on a repower EU plan to reduce dependency on Russian energy, which would be uh, funded by uh, sort of joint debt issuance. Uh, National governments in Europe, I think, will extend energy subsidies to cushion the impact on households. There's clearly going to be more spending to cope with the humanitarian crisis, as well as more spending on on defence. so you know, bottom line, you know, I, I still think recession is very much a tail risk. It's, it's certainly not our baseline, um, but the you know, downside risk to growth in the near term, especially for Europe, you know, is clearly greater because of the crisis in Ukraine. Not surprisingly, financial markets are currently very volatile. What's your take on the market reaction to the crisis? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's not easy to sort of disentangle Um, The risk premium and volatility arising from the war in uh, Ukraine from, you know, other important market drivers, you know, whether it be developments in China, you know, the spread of Omicron, uh, you know, shutdowns, but also uh, uh, more positive policy announcements 
announcements, as well as, of course, the outlook for um, interest rates from major uh, developed market central banks. Um, you, you're absolutely right, Alex. I mean, markets have been very volatile. We've seen, you know, very big um, you know, intraday as well as sort of daily moves in asset prices. Um, that's been against the backdrop where we've seen some pretty poor liquidity in markets as well. All of that said, you know, I think broadly the market reaction has been you know, kind of consistent with, um, you know, at least our assessment of the, the, the kind of broader implications of the crisis in Ukraine. So growth sensitive European risk assets, equity and credit have underperformed US risk assets. Yeah, that makes sense because it's a bigger negative growth shock for Europe than for uh, the US. Uh, beyond Eastern Europe, there's not really been any contagion across emerging markets. And, and I think the market rightly doesn't view the Ukraine-Russia crisis as a systemic risk event for uh, emerging markets. And you know, I, I, I don't think it's a systemic risk event for you know, the financial sector for European banks, uh, for, for example. But risk premiums, broadly speaking, have risen. Uh, across assets, and and that clearly does make sense, I think, considering the uncertainties of war. But what we've also seen is a big rise in government bond yields, despite this, you know, risk-off environment, and it, and it's meant that investors have had very few places to hide. In in terms of credit, it's broadly performed in line with its equity beta or sensitivity. So, in other words, you know, spreads have have widened broadly in line with past equity sell-offs. Um, we've, we've also, though, not seen any kind of decompression between high yield and investment grade credit. In, in fact, investment grade credit has actually underperformed um, high yield. So that signals that credit markets are not pricing a recession. They're not pricing, you know, a, a sort of dramatic rise in default risk. Um, I think the relative underperformance of investment grade credit um, in part, at least, reflects a higher liquidity premium as central banks and asset purchases and raise um, interest rates. And, and I don't actually think that credit spreads will meaningfully widen from where they are unless investors start to fear recession and much higher default rates sooner rather than um, later. Of course, you know, market volatility is going to stay high. I mean, it's going to be sensitive to headlines on the war in Ukraine. But I also think some of what we're seeing is due to this sort of invest change in investment regime. This is something we've discussed previously, Alex. And you know that you know we're moving out of the sort of low inflation, low volatility pre-pandemic regime. You know, I think macro uh, volatility is going to be greater. Inflation is clearly higher. I think it's going to be. Uh, not only higher, but I think more volatile over the medium term, you know, deglobalization, um, decarbonization, if anything, the crisis is accelerating these trends. And, and now we have this kind of sh changing or shifting sort of geopolitics um, as well. So there's, there's a lot for investors and uh, markets to absorb. And how are central banks reacting to the crisis? Well, the dilemma facing central banks is that weaker growth is a risk, but high and rising inflation is a reality. Um, now, central banks would normally look through a supply driven rise in fuel and food prices. I mean, you know, afterwards, it's not something that monetary policy can fix. Um, but with inflation already well above central banks targets and rising, 
inflation expectations moving higher, um, you know, and, and we've got monetary policy that is very far from being what might even be considered uh, neutral. So, you know, I think the bond markets and short-term interest rate markets have rightly concluded that central banks have little choice but to continue to, you know, withdraw the, the sort of extraordinary monetary accommodation put in place um, in response to the pandemic. So, you know, we recently had an ECB meeting, actually delivered um, you know, a, a bit of a hawkish surprise. It actually accelerated the end of its bond buying program. So it opened the window for earlier rate hikes, despite, you know, lowering its growth forecast and, and of course, the greater uncertainty. And, and the market continues to price uh, two rate hikes by the ECB uh, by uh, year end. Um, then more recently, we had the Bank of England. It raised interest rates for a third consecutive meeting to 0.75%. So we're back to the level of interest rates prior to the pandemic. Interestingly, the Bank of England actually had a bit of a dovish tilt despite um, uh, the increase in interest rates. Um, it, it clearly is worried by the impact on household incomes and growth of higher fuel and food prices. UK economy is very open. Um, you know, in our view, was and is at more risk of um, stagflation than other uh, major economies. So there was a bit of a sort of uh, dovish tilt to uh, uh, the Bank of England's messaging. We saw gilt yields fall across the curve. The market's now pricing, you know, somewhat fewer uh, rate hikes this this year. But I, I, I don't think the bank's going to have much choice. I mean, inflation's going to be, you know, pretty close to double digit. So I, I do think that the bank rate will be close to 2% by um, year end. And then, you know, most importantly, from a from, from a global perspective, uh, the US Federal Reserve raised interest rates for the first time since December 2018, and, and signaled that there's many more rate hikes to come. So let's talk more about what the Fed had to say. The least interesting and surprising outcome of the Fed meeting was the decision to raise interest rates by um, 25 basis points, so to, to, to get off zero. Uh, but there was much more for investors to digest from that meeting. Uh, the so-called dot plot showing each Fed committee member's expectation for where the policy rate is going implied a further six rate hikes this year. So that would imply Fed funds getting to uh, between one and three quarters and 2% by uh, year end. So that's been in line with our own uh, ex, you know, fairly long-standing um, expectations, but um, you know, nonetheless, we've now got that kind of you know signaled by the Fed and, and now priced by the market. I thought what was very interesting was just the extent to which Fed Chair Powell really banged the drum on the Fed's commitment to price stability. He he, he really did basically say the Fed will do whatever it takes to achieve price stability and bring inflation back down to its target of um, 2%. Powell also said that balance sheet reduction, so quantitative tightening, would start soon. Um, I think it's likely at the next meeting in, in, in May. He suggested it was equivalent to at least one rate hike. Um, you know, our own research suggests, you know, is consistent with, uh, with, with, with that. Um, I, I do think you know, that the path for Fed policy over the rest of the year is now much clearer for investors. And, and in that sense, it's now less a source of sort of near-term uncertainty, which I think is supportive uh, for, for markets. 
Um, we did see an initial sell-off in U.S. equities. Uh, they then rallied on Powell's, uh, you know, confidence that the U.S. economy is, you know, very strong, uh, well positioned to withstand uh, tighter monetary policy. I think it was interesting, though, the Treasury market, the bond market, a bit more sceptical. Um, you know, the Fed's kind of hawkishness saw yields rise along the curve, especially on the two-year Treasury note, but the yield curve also flattened. So the, the gap between the yield and the 10-year and the two-year Treasury note is only around 20 basis points. Now, that's typically um, a level that one sees when the Fed hiking cycle is pretty mature. And if you actually look at one-year forward rates, then, then the yield curve at the 10 twos point is actually inverted. So um, now, you know, I mean, the yield curve might be a less good predictor of recession risk than in the past, you know, because of the sheer scale of Fed Treasury um, holdings. Um, but, you know, as we highlighted you know, last year and in our outlook for um, 2022, um, you know, inflation, you know, wasn't transitory. It's uh, proving to be not only higher, but but much more sticky than uh, many market participants in the Fed believed. And, you know, and, and, the, and the risk you run as a central bank when you get behind the inflation curve is that ultimately you're forced to slam on the monetary uh, brakes much more aggressively. And, and that does create risks uh, for, for, for growth. Now, look, you know, I, I certainly share Powell's view that recession risk in 2022 is, is, is low, as we discussed uh, earlier. We, you know, we've got a sort of close to 3% growth forecast for the US for this year. But, but I wouldn't wholly discount a bit of a growth scare as we go into 2023. Um, so, I mean, maybe just to wrap up, look, you know, some of the war premium in, you know, some asset prices in FX has... Uh, declined in recent days, but I still think there's a huge amount of uncertainty from uh, the war in Ukraine. Um, the distribution, certainly, of growth outcomes has deteriorated, but I think an outright recession um, is still a, a, a distant prospect. Uh, major you know, developed markets, central banks, notably the Fed, I think are still you know, a fair way behind the inflation curve. And I think it's going to take a lot more market volatility, uh, a much more uh, meaningful deterioration in the growth outlook to sort of knock them off the path to tighter uh, monetary policy. Um, we've seen you know, a, a meaningful repricing of risk assets since actually the start of the year, as well as since the start of the crisis in Ukraine. But if we're right in our assessment that recession risk over the next sort of 12, 18 months is still um, low, then, then actually the, you know, there are pockets of value um, out there for um, investors. So you know, it's, a, it's a difficult environment, but I think it's an environment for um, uh, investors to um, you know, stay engaged. Thanks so much for your time today, David, and we'll speak again soon. Thanks very much, Alex. This podcast is issued by Blue Bay or one of its entities. Please check the entire Blue Bay disclaimer at the following website, www.bluebay.com forward slash podcast disclaimer. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only. It is not intended, nor should it be intended as investment, tax or legal advice. This podcast does not constitute an offer to sell, nor is it a solicitation of an offer to purchase any security or investment product in any jurisdiction. This podcast is not available for distribution in any jurisdiction where such distribution would be prohibited and is not aimed at such persons in those jurisdictions. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Blue 
Blue Bay makes no express or implied warranties or representations with respect to the information contained in this podcast and hereby expressly disclaim all warranties of accuracy, completeness or fitness for a particular purpose. Blue Bay is under no obligation to update the information in the podcast to reflect changes after the publication date. The information contained in this podcast is believed to be reliable, but Blue Bay cannot and does not guarantee its accuracy, timeliness or completeness. The document is intended only for professional clients and eligible counterparties as defined by the Markets and Financial Instruments Directive or in the US by accredited investors as defined by the Securities Act of 1933 or qualified purchases as defined in the Investment Company Act of 1940 as applicable and should not be relied upon by any other category of consumer. No part of this document may be reproduced, redistributed or passed on directly or indirectly to any other person, published in whole or in part for any purpose in any manner without the prior written permission of Blue Bay or one of its entities. Copyright 2022.